Welcome to this, our last study in systematic theology. We're going to be tackling the topic of eschatology, which is the study of the last thing. So I guess it is fitting that we saved it for the last week of our class. I know there are many of you who are probably excited to hear about the end times. You probably have your own opinions about the rapture and the millennium and so forth. And other of you might be hoping to nail down which camp you fit in when it comes to reading the book of Revelation, for instance. But I'm going to say from the outset that if those are your aims, you might be a little disappointed with this morning's talk. We're going to talk very little, if any, about particular views on the millennium, uh, the rapture, the timing of Christ's return. We won't get into whether to read Revelation symbolically, or uh, we won't exposit Jesus's Olivet Discourse in uh, Matthew or Mark with any detail. In fact, the reason that we're not going to focus on these aspects of eschatology isn't because they aren't important or worth studying. We know that all of God's word is helpful to us as we live our lives in obedience to him. I expect you will want to develop those conclusions about those facets of eschatology and even discuss them with members of our church, which is great. My fear, however, is that over the last few centuries, Christians have turned up the heat on these matters in a way that shows that we failed to place them in the right position on the scale of theological importance. We know some doctrines are essential to salvation. Other doctrines, while not essential for salvation, are necessary to agree on in order to live together as a church. But there is a third category of doctrine. This kind of third-tier doctrines are by no means completely irrelevant, but they should not divide congregations or keep us from doing ministry with people who disagree with our position. Our view of the nature of the millennium, the rapture, the timing of Christ's second coming, and the exact way to read Revelation belong squarely in that third category. Brothers and sisters, we can hold our eschatological views with clarity and conviction. We can sincerely think each other are wrong for our respective positions. But it would be a shame, and I think even more, a sin to work disunity among us, flying in the face of Jesus' words in John 17, to make the finer points of eschatology a litmus test for Christian orthodoxy. You'll notice our statement of faith, uh, which, is pointed, uh, which is printed in the handout, focuses in on where the scripture focuses in on, it majors where the scripture majors, the resurrection, the physical return of Christ, the afterlife, eternity, either in heaven or hell, and etc. For that reason, we're going to focus in on those things too, in order to both accent with the Bible accents and to promote unity around the gospel and the truth that Christ will return and we will dwell with the triune God forever. You can see the two articles of that statement of faith again printed there in that handout. You can find them on UBC's website as well. Friends, I want this time together, thinking about eschatology, to produce the effect that meditating on the end times is supposed to have, bolstering our assurance, giving us hope, spurring us on to love and good deeds. John says in 1 John 3, 1 through 3, that our contemplation of Christ's return should cause us to purify ourselves as Christ, our returning King, is pure. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, that our eschatology, what we know about the last things, should make us sober-minded. He also says we should wait in eager expectation for it since Verse 9, we have been destined not for wrath, but appointed to eternal salvation. For that reason, he continues, we should encourage one another and build one another up. Eschatology, done right, isn't the stuff of abject fear and speculation, but of hope and sanctification. So now, without further ado, let's do some eschatology. As I said, eschatology is the study of what the Bible teaches about the last things. We do need to keep in mind, however, what the Bible considers the last things or the end times. Consider how the author of Hebrews begins his book. He states that in times past, God spoke through the prophets in lots of different ways. But in these last days, note that phrase, in these last days, 
God has spoken definitively in his son, Jesus Christ. And Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, he quotes Joel 2, where it says, in the last days, all of God's people will have the gift of God's spirit. And Peter says that what's happening there at Pentecost is the direct fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, which Joel said would signify the end of the days, namely that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells God's people. Eschatology focuses on what Jesus is as the final revelation of the triune God and everything that he does to begin and complete God's saving purposes for his glory. So eschatology is more than just the, the, the very, very end of the world. It begins when Christ comes the first time, and it begins really uh, in principle whenever Christ resurrects from the dead, and it's everything in between that resurrection and the giving of the Spirit and when Christ returns and brings the new heavens and the new earth. So today, as we think through eschatology, I want us to think about six major parts that constitute a biblical eschatology, the kind of things that we can all, Lord willing, agree on as we live the Christian life together, as we live as a church. First, a biblical eschatology begins with a victorious resurrection. So point one, a biblical eschatology begins with Christ's victorious resurrection. Jesus' first coming was characterized by what theologians have traditionally called Christ's humiliation. Even though Jesus didn't lay down any of his divine attributes or cease to be as divine as he always had been in eternity past, it is true that Jesus' true identity as the rightful king of the universe was veiled or hidden in some ways. Instead of triumphing over his enemies with military might or political force, Jesus conquered through death on a cross. Jesus' earthly ministry was suffering before glory, a cross before a crown. The disciples did get a glimpse of Jesus' coming resurrection glory during the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw then what was revealed in full by Jesus' resurrection three days after the crucifixion. Christ's resurrection is as a part of what theologians have called his exaltation. The veil that was there is lifted and Christ's full glory is on display. The resurrection declares once and for all that Jesus' identity is that of the God-man, the one appointed to be the Messiah, the Savior of God's people and the Lord of all. We can sometimes forget that the gospel hinges on the resurrection. Jesus' work on the cross took away our sin, absorbed God's wrath completely, and referring to his own work on the cross, Jesus said what? It's finished. But if Jesus stayed in the grave, his claim to have accomplished salvation for his people would be false. Uh, Since Jesus died and rose again, We know that's not false, and we have a certain hope that if we repent of our sins and trust in his life, death, and resurrection, we too will be saved. It is indeed finished. Christ's resurrection approves his triumph over sin and death, over the authorities and powers of darkness. After the resurrection, of course, we have Christ's ascension. Uh, Jesus, the glorified Christ, goes up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, and now he's always living to make intercession for us before the Father. In heaven, Jesus retains both his human and divine nature. He's preparing a place for us as we wait for him to return to bring to a culmination everything he started during his earthly ministry. We have a sympathetic mediator, a great high priest in heaven who is waiting to bring us into the presence of God where he is. And we see that the Bible does make this direct connection between Christ's resurrection and his ascension and our own resurrection and ascension. Have you ever noticed that Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead in Colossians 1.18 or the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in 1 Corinthians 15.20? The reason for that kind of language is that Jesus' resurrection 
guarantees our resurrection. He is the first uh, of what will be many of those united to him by faith who will themselves rise from the dead as well. The, uh, the, the resurrection from the dead that we look forward to as believers. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then neither would we. But since he has physically uh, risen from the dead, defeated death, his soul being rejoined with his body, he, we will also one day rise from the dead physically. And our soul that goes to be with the Lord whenever we die will be reunited with our glorified bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. He's the first fruits because our Savior is bringing us with him. That's our hope in life and in death that Christ has made us his own. His death, our death, his victorious resurrection, our victorious resurrection. Second, a biblical eschatology recognizes Christ's death and resurrection brings about a new age. The resurrection ushered in a, a new era of redemptive history. Before, Adam's failure dominated. Sin and death reigned. But Christ's death and his reign signifies the entrance of this new covenant age, a new covenant that brings the full forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. Pentecost represents a seismic shift in redemptive history. Christ's victory, over Adam's, Christ's victory overcomes Adam's failure. Jesus' work reverses the curse that Adam's sin brought in the world. God's people now belong to a new creation. Christ's kingdom, his spiritual rule, has broken through the darkness like sun piercing through the clouds. We do know from experience, however, that even though Christ's kingdom is already present, it isn't fully realized. Satan and the power of sin and death are still operating, and, and we still feel their sting like a snake that can still inject poison into something after it's been dealt a moral blow. Our expectations for how we think life should go in a fallen world need to be governed by this reality that even though Christ has come and we are saved, there is still uh, so much suffering left for us as we live life in a fallen world. And we also know as Christians what it's like to have Christ's rule of our hearts being begun but not completed. We love God. We truly love God, but we don't love him as we ought or we don't love him as we will one day. We are not sinless. The spirit still fights against the flesh. We have new hearts, but we still haven't been perfected and we won't until either we die or Christ returns. Brothers and sisters, this should make us patient with each other. We shouldn't expect perfection from each other. We should expect repentance. We fight together to live like children of the light, like those who have been transported into this new age that has come in part, but is still coming as well as we wait ultimate consummation. Right now, we live like citizens of the heavenly kingdom on earth. We're ambassadors of an unseen kingdom and call people on a, to call on a king that they cannot see, at least for now. One day when Christ returns, every eye will see him and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. But for now, we bear witness to this age, this coming reign, by gladly submitting our lives to God's word and proclaiming Christ's message of mercy to all who receive it through repentance and faith. Third, a biblical eschatology acknowledges a purposeful history. The Bible teaches us that history is not cyclical and it isn't random. The earth's origins rest in God's work of creation and will terminate upon God's command. Time had definite beginning and it will have a definite end when Christ returns. God is sovereign over it all. And when we refer to God's providence, we're talking about his wise upholding and governing everything in the world to bring about his eternal plans. God's purpose in history is the revelation of Christ in the gospel, the salvation of his people. The Old Testament prophets talked all the time about the day of the Lord, the time when the Messiah would come to save God's people and judge God's enemies. Everything looked forward to Christ's first coming when God's promises would begin to be fulfilled, partial fulfillment. And now history is driving towards Christ's second coming when the final fulfillment of God's promises will be complete. 
But even though we know God is at work in the smallest details of human history, we need to be careful when interpreting our current times. God does everything according to his own eternal purposes, but it's hard, if not impossible, for us to know exactly why individual occurrences, why individual people rise up and why things happen and what they mean for God's plan in human history. So for an example, we really should be careful not to say that we know for certain the coronavirus, the pandemic that we are all facing, is a direct judgment of God on sinful nations. Why? Well, simply because we don't know that. Disease and death are the result of sin generally because we live in a fallen world. But to assign this tragedy, uh, this pandemic, as an effect of a particular cause would be to say more than God's told us. We need to approach the meaning of God's providence in the world with history. Sometimes we can see, looking back, what God did through particular events and people in history. Uh, But even then, we can't speak with certainty. We don't know the eternal mind of God. It's best to stick with what he's revealed to us in the scriptures, something that we can stand on, that we do know that he has revealed to us. God is working in history to bring everything to consummation in the Son, and we can trust that. We can know that it's coming and place our hope in that, even when we don't understand exactly how he brings all that about. We know he brings it about uh, in the person of Christ and in the fellowship now now of his people. But other than that, we just want to be cautious. Uh, One more thing about understanding the Bible's teaching on on history. Uh, Just because we say history is progressing towards Christ's return doesn't mean that everything is progressively getting better. And on the flip side, we shouldn't necessarily think that this is the worst it's ever possibly been, that the world is more sinful than it ever has been before. I think in that sense, Charles Dickens is actually onto something. It is the the best of times and it is the worst of times. A Christ's kingdom is here, but it's not fully realized. God's enemies still threaten to steal, kill, and destroy. I think I got those mixed up. But the Christian is always sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And we don't want to be naive and think that the world's going to be transformed into the kingdom of heaven. We also don't want to be unnecessarily discouraged and think that the evil of the world that we see so prominently has shortened God's saving arm in any way. We live in confidence that God is going to bring about all his purposes for good while still expecting to suffer this side of glory. Now, fourth, a biblical eschatology anticipates the glorious return of Christ. There will be a day, as the the hymn in as well says, when the clouds roll back as a scroll and Christ will appear to gather his people and punish those who continue in opposition to him. So what happens when Christ returns? Well, we know from 1 Thessalonians 5.2, it's going to come secretly like a thief in the night, meaning no one will expect it. But when it does happen, everyone will know. Paul just said in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that Christ would return with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of a loud trumpet. Christ's return may be, may be unexpected, but it will not be secret. We read in the same passage that when Jesus returns, those who have fallen asleep, meaning died, that's how sure we can uh, place our hope in the resurrection to come. We can say that they've merely fallen asleep, but he means died. Uh, everyone who's died before Christ's return will be raised from the dead at that point. It will be at that point that the believer's souls and bodies will be reunited, and we'll receive our glorified bodies. We'll exchange the perishable bodies that we have now for imperishable ones. And again, our glorified bodies are going to come alongside and be united with our glorified souls. Uh, and we thought about First John 3 earlier, where it says, you know, there's mystery in exactly what will be when we are glorified, what it will look like to be glorified. But we do know that we will be like him whenever we behold his glory, because we'll see him as he is completely. The best thing about eternity with Christ will be that our sin no longer hinders our communion with him. We won't have things 
clouding our spiritual vision of his glory, of his majesty, of his beauty. And we will be transformed totally into the image of our Savior. There will be no more sin that, that hinders us. We will be perfect in that sense. Uh, those who die before Christ returns will experience this, this kind of spiritual glorification when they die, but those who alive, are alive when Christ returns will experience the transformation of both their bodies and souls, that full work of glorification at once. We get a lot of biblical data. Uh, we don't rather get a lot of biblical data on what our glorified bodies will be like. And, uh, you know, I don't think that they'll be completely different. Uh, I don't think that they'll be completely the same either. But you can think of a, an, analog, uh, an analogous um, passage in Second uh, Peter 3, 9, I believe it is, where it talks about the earth passing through fire and passing away, giving away to a new earth. Well, it's still an earth, isn't it? But it's a new earth. So there's continuity and there's discontinuity. And I think there's analogy there for our resurrection bodies. It won't be completely, um, uh, it won't be like we won't recognize anyone or recognize ourselves, but uh, there will obviously be differences. Now, the question that everyone wants to ask is when, when will Christ return? Now, folks from across centuries have tried their hand at guessing the date of Christ's return. They've used numerology. We've uh, used interpreting uh, newspaper headlines or pressing into symbols found in the book of Daniel or Revelation or other apocalyptic literature. I do fear, however, that most of that time used speculating has been wasted. And that's because whenever we check out a passage like Matthew 24, 36, uh, which comes in the middle of as confusing a passage as be confound in the, that can be found in the Bible, Jesus uh, says that no one knows the day or the hour when he will return. He actually says he doesn't even know the day or the hour when he's returned, saying that uh, that belongs to the Father. Now, if you remember back to our lessons in the person and work of Christ, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't still God who knows all things, but he's saying according to his humanity and his human knowledge, he doesn't have that, that knowledge. He's not privy to the date of his return. And friends, if the Son of God taken on flesh through his humanity doesn't know when he's coming back, then we probably shouldn't spend our time fruitlessly speculating on the timing of Jesus' return. We do know that he is coming back. Uh, we do know he is returning and that we want to be ready when he does. We want to be awake, but not asleep, spiritually speaking. We want to be found being faithful to his commands and trusting his promises, living together as a church in a way that honors him instead of constantly being worried about figuring out exactly when he is coming back. Uh, in the scriptures, he's presented as coming back imminently or at any time uh, so that we will be ready. Uh, and so that we remember that if we think God is being slow to fulfill his promises, that he doesn't work in time uh, on a time crunch like we do, that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Uh, and besides, his waiting to return is allowing people now to hear the gospel and to be saved. Uh, as soon as Christ returns, we'll think about uh, then our status before God is fixed. When we make the day of the Lord all about speculation and fear, we lose out on something. Really, we lose out on the main point of Christ's return, which is God's glory. And of course, God will be glorified whenever he pours out his wrath on his enemies. But in 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says that Christ comes to be glorified and he'll be glorified as those who believe in him, marvel at him. So the second coming is our first chance to fully behold the splendor and majesty of our King and Savior. It marks the beginning of our heart's full satisfaction in God. And that's 
honestly what we're hoping in the dawn of the highest joy imaginable that can never ever be taken away from us. But the imminent return of Christ uh, should also make us ready evangelists. You know, there aren't endless opportunities to hear the gospel and be saved. Christ's second coming won't be a day of joy for everyone, but a day of terrifying judgment for those who remain in their sins. Friends, if you happen to be listening to this and you think that you can do your business with God tomorrow, you'll get to it later, then you may be presuming on an opportunity that will never come your way. God has provided a remedy for our sinning against him. Christ's perfect life and wrath-bearing death can be ours if we turn from our sin and trust in this resurrected Savior. And friends, as Christians, we ourselves need to remember to continue to walk in repentance before God, continue walking in the light, and not assume that we can coddle our sin and that we'll stop all of our backslidings tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Today, the author of Hebrews says, uh, quoting a psalm, If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, repent. Now that leads us to our fifth point. A biblical eschatology understands that once we die, or when Christ returns, our eternity is fixed. Death is final in that our status before God is sealed when we die. The same for those who remain alive until the second coming. There will be no second chances on the day of the Lord. The wicked will be consigned to hell for their willful rebellion, and those who have fled to Christ for refuge will go and be with him forever. There is in death and will be in the final sense after Jesus comes back a final divide between God's people and God's enemies. Remember, of course, that we all began as God's enemies and that the glory of the gospel is that this God makes his enemies friends through the work of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. But we want to say, contrary universalism, that not everyone will be saved. Jesus used the image of sheep and goats in the gospel to describe the final judgment with the sheep being God's people uh, being uh, herded into one direction and the goats being uh, everyone whose heart is still hostile to God being shepherded in the other direction. There's a separation, one to everlasting fire and one to everlasting bliss. Right now in the world, uh, non-believers and believers coexist like uh, wheat and weeds in a field, to use another image from Matthew 13. But that separation will come where the weeds will be uprooted uh, from the wheat, from God's people, and that separation will be final. We'll talk about eternal life for the believer in more detail in our last point, but it is worth mentioning here that believers who die before the return of Christ go immediately into the presence of our Lord. Paul makes that clear in 2 Corinthians 5a, we'll be absent from the body, but present with the Lord. And I only bring this up because it's kind of become common for Christians in some circles to make light of heaven, given that it's not technically our final homes. And unfortunately, we have probably too often made a caricature of eternal life complete with clouds and harps and babies with wings. Uh, We too often forget about the new heavens and the new earth. But we do have this scripturally as a comfort that we will be with Christ immediately whenever we die. Whenever we think about the thief on the cross, he doesn't say, Uh, you know, you will die and then eventually you'll be with me whenever I return and I raise you from the dead. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now on the flip side, the topic of hell has become increasingly controversial, even among Christians, or at least uh, those who claim the name of Christ. The Bible is clear, however, that everyone who does not repent of their sins and trust in Christ will spend eternity in hell. Jesus himself talked about hell more than any other person recorded in the scriptures. He assumes it was a literal place where the unbeliever will be eternally punished for their sins against God. 
He describes it as an eternal fire, a place where not even worms die, a place where its residents will gnash their teeth and, and anguish and, and hatred towards God. We don't know exactly what hell will look like or the exact nature of the punishment received, but we do know that God will be very present there in his wrath, and it will be poured out in full and final measure, and that this punishment won't ever decrease, and it won't ever cease. It lasts forever. There's no escape. There is no end. We know that from uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man found in Luke 16. You might ask at this point, is hell really fair? Is that a fair punishment for our sin? And it is more than fair. It's absolutely just. God's wrath, his holy hatred of sin, is tied to God's worth, his worthiness to be praised and given glory. Hell is just because to sin against an infinitely good God deserves a punishment of an infinite measure. In fact, God would no longer be good. He would no longer be God if hell didn't exist. But I do hope that you see how hell also makes the cross of Christ that much more glorious. That eternity of punishment and hell that we were destined for and that we so deserved was executed on Christ instead. He took an eternity's worth of God's wrath for us. He drank every last drop of hell so that we would never taste any of it for ourselves. Without hell, the gospel isn't as good, much good news as it is. Now, sixth and finally, a biblical eschatology anticipates the new heavens and the new earth. It's true that heaven is not the believer's final destination. We look forward to the final resting place where we will dwell with God, uh, that the place he's prepared for us as people. When we think back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel saw a prophecy uh, at the end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48, about a temple, one with a river flowing out of it that has trees on either side whose leaves are for the healing of nations, redeeming people from all tribes and tongues. The new place for God's people to dwell, Ezekiel reveals, will be called the Lord is there. God, again, promising to dwell with his covenant people. Now turn to Revelation 21, 22. We've just been told about this glorious place, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that God is giving to his people, a place where peace and righteousness and justice shines, a place of, of no suffering, I will think about in a bit. Uh, and note again that it does come down to us. We don't pull it down in a way to earn it. We don't build it up. It's a gift of God. But John reports that in this place, there's no temple. Why? Well, because actually the Lord himself is our temple. He dwells with us directly. The whole place is said to be like a perfect cube, which is interesting because the Holy of Holies in the temple of old was described as a perfect cube, that place where God's presence especially dwelt. Then in Revelation 22, we find that same language Ezekiel used uh, of that a river of life flowing from the throne of God and continually giving life to those trees on either side of its banks that are for the healing of the nations. To sum it up, brothers and sisters, this new heavens and new earth is the culmination of everything God's people have ever hoped for. Our final dwelling place that's brimming with life, filled with life and that abundantly. Now, here are the words of, of Revelation 21, 4, where it says, In the new heavens and the new earth, God will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, we will no longer, in the new heavens and the new earth, have to feel the sharp sting of sin and death. No more abortion, no more racism, no more children taking too early, no more hungry, no more anxiety or depression, and friends, no more sin in our own hearts. That is something to look forward to. 
that's something to keep us afloat when the waves of this world beat against us. We will be reunited with those who have gone before us to worship the Lamb together around His throne forever. But make no mistake, the best thing about the new heavens and the new earth, everything that eschatology is about, is what we read in Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with him as their God. We will have God as our great reward. What we look forward to is not so much what God gives, but who God is. Fully and finally, we will enjoy pleasures forevermore at his right hand. He is the greatest gift of heaven. He is the greatest gift of the new heavens and the new earth. He is what makes eternity without pain or sorrow or tear worth hoping for. No more sorrow, no more sin, just pure delight in Christ as we glorify God forever by enjoying him forever, as we only find more and more and more and more reasons to give praise to the lamb who was slain and by his blood ransom the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son who we can place our hope in now and in our eternity. We thank you that this life isn't all that there is, and we pray that uh, what we know about you would cause us to live faithfully now, that we would be so heavenly-minded that we would be of earthly good, that we would be reminded of your character and would live in light of it in love and in justice, and that we would encourage one another and all the more as the day draws near. Father, we pray that you would help us to do this by the power of your Spirit, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.